in your Bible, the book of Revelation. And uh, we are continuing our series that was begun last week in this book of Revelation. And uh, Ranjur Locke helped us see Jesus exalted beautifully in chapter 1 last week. So let me encourage you, if you weren't here last week, make sure you go to our website and either watch the video or listen to the audio. It was that good, okay? And it was that foundational, okay? To make sense out of where we're going, that first chapter is absolutely essential. And Ranjur brought it to us in such a helpful way. So catch the audio or the video on our website. It's there for you for those purposes. Um, also on our leader blog, which is also available there if you're not subscribing yet, um, there are some recommended resources I put on there to help guide you as you study Revelation. I know a number of you have given up. It's just too slap weird, right? And it's nice to have a guide. And uh, this one is called um, The Returning King by a, uh, a scholar named Vern Poitras. It's free and helpful. So I would recommend that to you as a guide as you study the book of Revelation. There are some other resources that are also mentioned there. This one I would expect would be helpful to almost all of us. And again, it is absolutely free by his generosity. So check that out this week. Um, and, and I think you'll find it valuable for you and it's very wisely written. But after this amazing portrait of Jesus in Revelation 1, the focus of the next two chapters are the letters to the seven churches that were alluded to in chapter 1. You remember, in verses 10 and 11, John, who is recording this, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are, are then named. Um, now notice that the writings to the churches are to be compiled into a single book and then they're sent to all the churches, right? So in a sense, these churches are supposed to read each other's mail, okay? Um, these are actual historical churches. Um, you can see they're all in what we would consider modern-day Turkey. And... Um, it isn't coincidental, I don't think, that there are seven of them, okay? It wasn't that there were only seven churches in that region, but in the book of Revelation, numbers often take on a symbolic significance. Um, in literature like this, that's a common thing, and the number seven is often associated with completeness or fullness. That's why Ranjur alluded to that when he talked about the seven spirits of God, possibly alluding to the fullness of the spirit of God last week. And likely, the fact that there's seven of these uh, letters indicate that these are for all churches across time, including ours. So these letters, they are written also to us. So we'll treat them really like any of the letters in the New Testament. If you read Philippians or Ephesians or any of those, we would acknowledge their historicity. They're written to a people in a place in a church, but they also have a timelessness about them that means that these seven letters, they're for us. Okay. So 
Revelation chapter 2, and I'd I'd like to pray for us uh, as we wade into this. Bow with me, please. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. We hold up the mirror of your church. Help us see ourselves with clarity. North Wake and her people, each of us, finding our place in these love letters that you wrote to the churches that matter so to you. So help us, God, now. By your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. So if you read over these letters, they're super short. Jesus was an awesome letter writer. He kept it really, really short, okay? All seven of them are going to take a couple pages in your Bible. Um, But there's a pattern to them. You'll see that even this morning as we look at the first two. There's a template. Um, You'll pick up on it as you read them. They're like form letters, really, um, in that they have a common form. And uh, we'll look. We'll see it right out of the bat. You'll see the, the pattern as we go. The first letter is written to the church in the city of Ephesus. It begins like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So each church has an angel that Jesus is writing to. Okay, that's what we're reading. So think about this for a minute. We're reading together the words of Jesus entrusted to angels to bring to his churches. Okay. Something very, very sacred is happening here. You're holding something pretty awesome in your hands, on your phones. And... Angels are messengers who bear God's message and aid to his people. And they're so closely related to the churches themselves that to speak to the angel is to address the church itself. Right? And this first letter is to the city of Ephesus. Um, you're probably familiar with its ruins. Uh, you've seen pictures of them, the great amphitheater that held tens of thousands of people. Still, you can go and see it there this day. It's also kind of... The first on the route in the map, if you were making a circle, clockwise circle, visit these churches, you go to Ephesus first. But Ephesus is also first in prestige and prominence amongst these seven cities. Uh, Back in the day, it may have been a quarter million people, an influential port city um, that was known for emperor worship. Professor Craig Keener says that the Emperor Domitian had named Ephesus guardian of the imperial cult, making it foremost center of the imperial cult. We would consider that emperor worship in Roman Asia. And the emperor cult was not the only prominent element of paganism there. Ephesus was known for the worship of the goddess Artemis. That's in Acts 19. The practice of magic. And it also had a large Jewish community. The the Apostle Paul traveled, ministered in the city of Ephesus for roughly three years, um, and the New Testament contains his letter to this church, named appropriately, Letter to the Ephesians. And Jesus self-describes himself as holding seven stars in his right hand. Now, the stars, we're told in chapter 1, are the angels of their churches. Jesus is holding them in his right hand. They are under his authority. 
Now, this could also be a really subtle dig against the emperor Domitian, who's likely the emperor at the time this is written, written um, perhaps in the later estimates, in the 90s. Not that, like the 1990s, but the 90s, right? <laughs> so Emperor Domitian had minted this coin. They actually still have a few of them around. You notice that his son is sitting on the globe, and that globe is surrounded by, that's right, seven stars. It's interesting. It was emphasizing the child's divine status. And it's almost as Jesus presents himself as the one who holds the stars in his hand. He's saying, no, it's not the emperor, nor his son who reigns and rules. It's me. It's Jesus. With full authority, he says, I walk among the lampstands. And you remember from last week, the lampstands represent the churches, right? In this symbolic imagery that we're unfolding here. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's walking amongst his churches because he loves them. The, the language that Ranjur guided us through is phenomenal. This, this is a short portion of verse 5 in chapter 1. Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood. And he is among the churches with love and authority. And he's about to dictate the first of his seven letters to this angel associated with um, the church in Ephesus. But it's good for us this morning here in North Wake Church to envision Jesus walking among us in love and authority. He's here. He loves you. This is his church. And he is speaking to us via these letters just as much as he was to those first century churches that he, when he wrote them. Okay. That's why in every one of these letters, Every single one of the seven letters, you'll hear these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is inviting all of us, every reader, to hear, to truly hear what he's saying as he walks among his churches in loving authority. And this is what he says. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So in the form of these letters, um, Jesus always says to his churches, I know you. Okay? I know you. Twice he says it here. And he's focused on their works. I know your works. And he says, I know you're enduring patiently. I know you. Nothing is hidden in the eyes of Jesus. He knows. Because he loves us so, he knows. Our deeds are known to him. He knows that you stayed at work late to bail out a co-worker. He knows that you opened your home to your daughter's friend when her dad was too drunk to care for her. 
He knows you were secretly generous to that family in need. He knows you went and visited that neighbor in the hospital. He knows. Jesus knows your deeds. All of them. And in each of the letters, Jesus commends the churches for their good deeds and for who they are. In Ephesus, he commends them for their endurance five times. In this little section of two verses, he commends them for persevering in their faith. It's twice there in verse 3. He says, I know your toil, your hard work. I know your patient endurance. It's three times more in verse 4. You're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I think Cliff Young may have been an Ephesian. Let me introduce you to Cliff Young. Back in 1983, Australia hosted its ultra marathon, a 573.7 mile foot race, okay? From Sydney to Melbourne. Uh, it's a race that takes days to run. Professionals from all over the world came to participate, and shortly after the race was about to begin, a 61-year-old farmer, 61 is a particularly vivacious age, um, by the way, a 61-year-old farmer named Cliff Young, uh, wearing overalls and, and galoshes um, without his false teeth, because he said they rattled around in his head when he ran, uh, walked up to the registration table and requested a number to enter the race. <clears throat> the people at the registration table thought it was a joke that somebody had put him up, up to it. Um, but the press and other athletes, they got curious. They start asking Cliff. They said, you're crazy. There's no way you can finish this race. And he says, oh, yes, I can. He says, see, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors. <clears throat> the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. So we had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I would have to run those sheep for two or three days. It took a long time, but I'd always catch them. I believe I can run this race. So Cliff Young walks over to the start of the race. All the other are prof professional runners. This is not something you do as a hobby, run 600 miles, right? They're younger, obviously. They're better trained. They're better outfitted. They look at him like he's crazy. The crowd snickers, they laugh all the more when the gun goes off and the race begins because all these professional runners have sculpted bodies, beautiful strides. Not Cliff Young. He, he, he had what is now known as the Young Shuffle in ultramarathoning. Um, it was an awkward, goofy-looking shuffle. And when the race started, um, the pros quickly left Cliff behind. Crowds and television audience were entertained because Cliff didn't even run properly. He had that little shuffle. And many feared for the old farmer's safety. But five days, 14 hours and four minutes later, at 1.25 in the morning, Cliff Young shuffled across the finish line of that 573.7-mile ultramarathon. He had won the race. He didn't win by a matter of minutes or even an hour or two. The second-place runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind him. So the, the press, they mob him. They're trying to figure out what kind of running shoes he must have. And, that, and they rummage through his backpack, wondering what he survived on, mostly pumpkin seeds and water. And then they discovered what the secret to his success was. Um, Cliff Young had shuffled his way to victory with almost no sleep. Um, 
The other runners typically run 18 hours straight, <clears throat> then sleep for about six hours and get up and run for you know, the, the other 16, 18 hours a day. But Cliff would run far later and arise much earlier at points even running nonstop throughout the entire night. He endured running five days, 14 hours and four minutes at the age of 61. And the awesome thing about Cliff, other than this insanity, so there's a $10,000 prize. Cliff had no idea. <laughs> he said, I didn't run for the money. And so five, only five other guys of the, I think 150 that started the race were able to finish. He took the 10,000, he split it up between those five guys and gave it all away. Kept none of it. Um, see, I think Cliff Young could have been an Ephesian. I really do. With that kind of endurance... And so, don't miss this, church, okay? Jesus commends fivefold here those who persevere in hardship and do not give in to the temptation to quit their faith, okay? Fivefold. The church in Ephesus was persevering amidst the cultural pressure that was likely present under then-emperor Domitian, and Jesus repeatedly commended them for it. Okay. Persevere, endure. The pleasure of Jesus is upon your life. Now he also commended them for their spiritual discernment. Look, look at verse two with me. It says, he says, I know your works, your toil, patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. If you drop down to verse 6, he says something else along the same line. He says, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the church at Ephesus, it sounds like, had good doctrine. They knew truth. They were discerning. They hated the works of these folks called the Nicolaitans. We're not sure who these people were. Best guesses were that they were people who were idolatrous. Likely they, they began to practice uh, the emperor worship that prevailed in their day. Um, they also probably embraced an immoral lifestyle giving in to the sexual practices of their day. But the church in Ephesus hated their works. Didn't hate them. Hated their works. And Jesus commends them for this. So, so far, so good in Ephesus, right? But Jesus' letter has more to say to the church there and here. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So one writer summarized the situation in Ephesus this way. He says, they didn't have the wrong books on the shelf. They didn't have the wrong teachers in the pulpit. He wasn't criticized them because they weren't generous givers or faithful servants or patient endurers or overcomers. He says, if we just put together a list like a chore list, he's saying, you know, we check every box. Your church is absolutely dutiful and faithful, but I know your heart. It's gotten a little calloused. It's gotten a little hard. It's not very loving. The result is, he says, you've fallen from where you started. When you started, there was a lot of love in your church, love for each other, love for the leaders, love for non-Christians, lost people, love for the Lord, love for enemies. He says, it's not that they hate and despise. They're just sort of done being very loving, 
being patient and kind and gracious and understanding. The Apostle Paul writes these sobering words, don't let their familiarity rob you of their impact. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So if you get everything else right, if you're trying really, really hard to do the right things and you're working really, really, you're really, really careful to believe all the right things, but you sense your love is flagging, then listen really closely to the words of Jesus this morning. They're for you. In love, they're for you. Verse 5, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. These are strong words. Repent or I'll remove your lampstand from its place. What does Jesus mean? He doesn't, doesn't spell it out, but it's not good, right? It's not good. We don't know exactly what this means. You do not want this to happen, right? That's evident. It could mean that we won't be useful to him if we become loveless. That he'll set us aside as a church or, or for you personally. We'll be worthless to him in being a witness, a light to the world if we don't love well. Other scholars think it might be even more serious and that if the church in Ephesus doesn't repent and return to their first love, they'll be cast aside and cease to even exist as a church. But either way, Jesus' words should worry us to self-examination. Careful, deep down in here kind of self-examination. Is my love growing or is it waning it's not enough to have right behavior and right doctrine if we don't have right affections right loves Jesus says remember Jesus says when you loved freely and gladly remember and repent he says it's interesting of the seven churches only two have this kind of clarion in your face call to repent the first one Ephesus we're seeing it and the last one Laodicea, both in a sense have disordered loves. So you might be wondering, so what love are we talking about here? Who is the lovey that Jesus, is that, I don't know if that's a word, the person that you're loving that Jesus is concerned about here? Is he, is he concerned about whether our love for God has grown cold or our love for neighbor has grown cold? And Scholars have pointed us in both directions, and it's likely because these two loves are virtually inseparable. You remember 
um, when Jesus was remarking about the one great commandment, the greatest commandment of all, of all, he says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he feels as though he feels compelled to add, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so our church is built around these great, these two great loves. We've broken them into what we call our three circles, right? We love God, we love his people, and we love our neighbors. Okay? That's who we're striving to be as a people. That's, that's what marks us. We love God and we love neighbor as ourselves. Neighbors in this room and neighbors outside of this room. We love So, are you loving less in any of these circles these days? If you're persevering and you're spiritually discerning, but your love for anyone in this church or anyone at work or anyone in your neighborhood or your family or for God himself is on a downward trend, this morning Jesus looks at you in love and he says, repent, repent. And then he says something that I would not expect. In verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So if he's all concerned about how we love, then why is he telling us to do stuff? If it's about affections, why is he after our works? And I, I like the way author Dave Simmons put it in what he called his Simmons family motto. It was simply this, love is action. Love is action. Actually, actually, he would say love is sacrificial action. And Jesus tells us in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? The works show the love. They authenticate it. Has your obedience to Jesus declined in some way? The way you love his people, the way you love neighbors, the way you give and serve here, the way you serve at home, the way you dig into the word and seek God in prayer, the way you forgive and love in hard places. If your trend is down in these matters and others that Jesus commands us in, Jesus says, repent and produce deeds in keeping with your repentance. Jesus is walking among his churches and he is telling them to repent of not loving well. Are these his words to you this morning? There's more to this first letter. It continues the pattern that we'll see. There's a promise, a beautiful promise at the end. He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is awesome, fabulous meal. Amazing restaurant. This is what Jesus says we get to do, right? We get to eat the tree of life. How awesome is that? What is that? What does that mean? We get to do it in the paradise of God. That is totally awesome too. Where is that? Like Cancun? Where is this? What does this look like? This is restoration imagery, okay? It takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis to the Garden of Eden. You remember when Adam and Eve were banished from that garden, there was one particular tree that was fenced off from them by a sword-bearing angel. In chapter 3 of Genesis, God drove out the man, 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now, another angel promises them access to that very tree. See, the language of paradise is the language of a garden. We will get to eat of that tree in that garden after all. In the garden, in paradise, with God forever. It doesn't get any better than that. And it's kind of this interesting play on one of their great gods, that god Artemis or Diana, that goddess. Um, Professor Grant Osborne says that the temple of Artemis was originally a tree shrine. And a symbol of Artemis well into the New Testament period was a date palm. In other words, this tree of life promise here is a further counter to the idolatry and immorality of Ephesus because as a fertility goddess, Artemis signified life. And Jesus says, I promise you fullness of life forever with God. To those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to those who conquer in faith in Jesus' conquest. So listen well, church. The church at North Wake... Jesus says, the one who loves you and has freed you by his blood, the one who promises you eternal life in the paradise of God, he promises you whatever you are enduring, whatever you are facing, it is worth it. It is so worth it. Persevere. Persevere. So let's turn our attention real briefly to the second letter. Uh, it's very short. It's only four verses. He said Jesus could write a really concise letter. Right? It's written to a church at Smyrna. Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities that continues in our day. It's now called Izmir, and it's located in modern Turkey, uh, as you see on, on the map there. It, too, in the day was a thriving harbor city about 35 miles north of Ephesus. One writer says... It was the first city of Asia to erect a temple to the goddess Roma. In AD 26, because of its long royalty to Rome, it beat out 10 other cities for the privilege of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. In succeeding decades, it became a center for the imperial cult for emperor worship. So again, we find a letter likely written to a church swimming upstream against the current of her pagan culture. And again, Jesus speaks to the angel of that city. And he says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Pay attention to the way Jesus self-identifies here. He's the first and the last. He's the sovereign over history, in control not only of the past but of the future. Christ is the eternal one, guaranteeing vindication for his suffering followers. But pay special attention to that second phrase. The one who died and came to life. We could say he's the one who conquered death. Keep that in mind as Jesus speaks to this church. So, continuing the formula, he speaks what he knows of the people of Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. 
So this church has been suffering greatly, right? Uh, Tribulation, poverty, slander, impending imprisonment, testing, and more tribulation. That's how Jesus knows them. He knows their life. If you are suffering, Jesus knows. He knows. He knows your suffering. He says something interesting. He says that they're poor, but yet they're rich. One writer explains it this way. Rome was antagonistic towards new religions, especially those who did not deify the emperor. And the Jews, jealous that Gentile God-fearers were converting to Christianity in such numbers, were only too happy to inform the Romans that Christianity was not a Jewish sect. However, this persecution had actually brought the church closer to God, as often happens. The exalted Christ could say at this point, but you are rich. In other words, in spite of the affliction you are going through, God has given you spiritual riches beyond your wildest dreams. So this church is suffering greatly. But if you look through, you read the little letter, there's no condemnation. There's no rebuke for this church. There's only only two churches that escape unscathed of the seven. This is one of them. Clearly, church, pay attention to this. The presence of hardship and suffering in your life need not mean that God is displeased with you. In a church that Jesus has no words of condemnation for, they're about to be imprisoned, some of them. And it's not a sign of his displeasure. For 2,000 years, Christians have been being imprisoned for their faith You know, suffering and hardship just comes with following Jesus. It does. It's not an indicator of the displeasure of God. So Jesus says, don't fear. Already in the book, this is the second time he said to his people, don't fear. Remember back in um, chapter 1, verse 17? John says, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. Same image. Even if they should imprison you, fear not. The book of Hebrews tells us why. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because of Jesus' cross work, And because of his empty tomb work, we no longer need fear, suffering, imprisonment, or even death itself. And to this faithful, suffering church, Jesus now gives them their promises. It's his part of the pattern. Here are promises for you. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful. Jesus encourages this church as she stares down tribulation and poverty and slander and impending imprisonment and testing and more tribulation. Be faithful even unto death, Jesus says. Do you remember when Jesus said these words? I bet they're familiar to you. It comes from Mark 8. 
calls the crowd to him with his disciples and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What if he really meant that? Truly meant that we should be ready to die for his sake if we follow him. Now, now remember how Jesus identified himself at the start of their letter, their little letter. He says, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Only the one who conquered death can call us to be faithful unto death and assure us of rescue from the second death. Okay? That's what he's doing in, in, in verses 10 and 11 there. He makes these amazing promises. He says, I will give you, if you're faithful to me unto death, I'll give you a crown of life. It's interesting, Smyrna had a ring of buildings that were called the crown of Smyrna. And Jesus says, I offer you a better crown, crown of life, that even the second death, death after death, the eternal death after death, which is the great and terrible judgment of God, cannot rob us of this life. These great and precious promises Jesus offers to the ones who conquer to the ones who remain faithful and continuing following Jesus to the end. Professor Osborne says, our victory is our participation in his victory. It is critical to realize that in the seven letters, the victory is a promise held out to all seven, even the weak churches of Sardis and Laodicea. But he says, we lay hold of it through our perseverance. This little letter, uh, these few verses to, to Smyrna, they're a letter for those of us who suffer. And if you, are, if you are suffering today, take heart. Jesus is telling you that it's worth it, that the promised crown of life that's given to the church in Smyrna and the chance to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God that's promised to Ephesus, these make it worth it to be faithful even unto death for Jesus. And, of course, all of this comes to us through Jesus' own death on the cross for us and his resurrection in the third day. That is where we hope. That is where we trust okay, in Jesus' good work on our behalf. Today we want to close our time with a meditation on the love of God for us around the Lord's table. And so... As we do that, again, we'll use um, the center aisle and the far wall aisles to approach the table and, and these two to return to our seats. And you're welcome at this table if you're a follower of Jesus Christ who's walking in fellowship with him. But as we prepare for this table, we'd like to have a time of consecration in our suffering okay, as we approach the table, that we will say to Jesus, yes, we will follow you still because you are the one to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We say yes to following that Jesus still. 
In tribulation or poverty or slander or impending imprisonment or testing or more tribulation on top of it all. This is a chance just for you to take a moment and say yes again to following Jesus, to being faithful to follow Jesus.